Hey guys, I'm Valerie. And I'm Jasmine, and this is Crafts, Drafts, and Crime. This is officially our season finale for season eight, and we are going to be doing the second part of Death Angels. And so if you are a Patreon member, you've already had access to this. And so we're also releasing an episode for you guys on our Patreon today so that you're not missing out on anything. But we're just going to kind of, we have some announcements we're going to make, but we're going to wait until our first episode of next season. So we're just going to kind of jump right in and pick up right where we left off. So just as a reminder, we're in San Francisco. I'm referring to like 98% of people by their last names. Um, Cook's already got arrested. And so we're going to move forward from there. So. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get your laughs out now because they're about to come to a sharp end. I know, I know. <laughs> okay, so December 22nd of 1973, Harris finally got his gun back from Simon and Moore because they had borrowed it, if you remember, and they had been using it on their killing spree. So Harris decided it would be in his best interest to keep it hidden when it wasn't in his personal use. So he hid it in an air vent in the bathroom of the mosque that they attended. Now, Green was kind of suspicious of Harris when he left mid-meeting, and he caught him actually hiding it in there. It was very atypical for somebody to get up in the middle of a meeting and go even to the restroom. So he followed him in there, saw him closing the air vent, went behind him and took a look in there and noticed that the gun was there. But instead of confronting Harris about it, Green decided he would just borrow the gun if he wanted to because now he knows where it is. So on December 22nd, he took it. So 19-year-old Neil Moynihan was walking on the street carrying a bag that contained a teddy bear, which was a Christmas gift for his 10-year-old sister. 24-year-old Donald Crumb was just a short distance ahead of him on the sidewalk. Green was walking towards the two men. So Crumb took a turn before reaching Green, but Moynihan was continuing in his path. So as they crossed, Green withdrew the gun, shooting Moynihan three times, once in the right cheek, once in the neck, which traveled through to his lung, and once in his heart. Moynihan died immediately. Crumb heard the shots and headed back towards the main road and saw Moynihan on the ground. Green ran in the opposite direction and didn't stop until he thought he was a good distance away. When he did stop, he let out a little laugh, pleased with himself. It was then that he noticed 50-year-old Mildred Hosler staring at him from across the intersection. She was on her way to the bus stop, but stopped in her tracks, alarmed by Green's behavior. She decided to wait where she was, hoping he would leave, but Green didn't move. So Hosler decided to turn up the road and go to a different bus stop. Well, Green took after her. Mind you, Hosler did not see what happened. She just thought it was strange behavior. So Hasler was heavy set and unable to move quickly up the road that had a hill on that she had turned down and Green was approaching her really quickly. When he reached her, he pulled the gun and without a word shot her four times in the chest. He ran from the scene and headed towards the mosque, prepared to put Harris's gun back. Harris was watching the news as this was happening, and the announcer stated that a 32 caliber pistol was used, and Harris became confused. As far as he knew, his gun was in the air vent in the mosque. The announcer also described the appearance of the perpetrator that witnesses had seen. Now, Harris thought that it sounded kind of like green, and because of the circumstances, he's like, oh shit, maybe it is. So, Harris headed to the mosque to check for his gun. When he got there, his gun was in the air vent. It wasn't hot, but the barrel smelled like it had been shot. So he decided to check the magazine, and he saw that seven bullets were missing. But he was not positive who used it, and he didn't know how they even knew it was there. He was so angry that this gun at this point had killed so many people. Mind you, Harris has not killed anybody at this time. So he decided he was going to chuck it into the bay from the Golden Gate Bridge. So the next day, Green admitted to Harris that he used his gun. The two killings were, of course, linked with ballistics testings to the other killings and to the gun. So Harris decided, you know, I'm just done with it. 
he didn't tell anybody that he chucked it into the ocean, but that's exactly what he did. Or that would be the sea, not the ocean there. Whatever that is. So, December 23rd of 1973, four death angels kidnapped a 25-year-old white man. They followed and cornered him, putting a gun to his chest, forcing him to come with them. They tied him to a chair naked. When they checked his wallet, they discovered that the man was from out of town. They gagged him and left him bound there for hours until almost everybody was there. I want to give a really quick trigger warning. Um, this is pretty terrible. One of the members took a box out that had an assortment of large knives and machetes. Each member took one and they all got into a line ready to take their turn hacking at the white man. The first member cut off the white man's left ear. Next, cut off one of his thumbs. The next cut off three of his toes. At this point, the man fell unconscious as the members continued to chop away his, at his body. When Harris arrived at the party a couple hours later, the members had already put the deceased man's body in a bag ready for disposal. Now, at this point, most of the Death Angels were pretty mad with Harris because they didn't think that he had the heart to be a Death Angel. He hadn't killed anybody, and he also hadn't even tried to yet. So they decided that to fulfill his role, he could dispose of the body. So Green helped Harris load the bag into the van and set Harris on his way. So he disposed of the body bag into the bay, unsure of exactly what was inside. All that he knew is that it weighed over 100 pounds and there was probably a person inside. The man inside is actually still a John Doe. He is an unidentified oh, man. And he was from out of town, which I mentioned, they thought that was perfect because they thought nobody would know to look for him. So, yeah, unfortunately, he was like the perfect victim in this case. He's yes. out of town. He probably had only a, he, like a select few people who knew him there. Or maybe, like they said, like nobody knew him. Right. Um, there and he you know just somehow migrated that way that's it's crazy it's really scary and it's just another one of these things that they weren't being particularly careful they weren't picking specific victims other than just by you know the color of their skin and the convenience and it just so happened that they kept getting lucky and their targets kept being people that they could get away with just like this nobody even know to look for him but he was found. So let me back up a little bit, though. Green drove off in another direction in his other car as Harris was going to dispose of this man's body. And he noticed a car following him. So after a few turns, the car put a light on top of the unmarked car to signal Green to pull over. When the officers approached Green, they asked if he could they could search his vehicle. They had noticed the similarity between his appearance and the description of the perpetrator from two nights ago. So, Green let the man search his car, and they found nothing. Can you imagine if he had been in that car with the victim? Right. Unfortunately, he was smarter than that. And that's what pisses me off about these people, is that they're so fucking smart when it comes to certain things. You see, it's funny, because I don't think they're smart. I just think they're lucky. Yeah, I mean, that could be. Um, I do believe in luck, but I don't, I don't know. It's just... The thing is, is that they're not taking all these precautions. They just happen to keep getting away with shit. It, yeah, it's just like they're right. not they're not making any... You know what I mean? He didn't even try to disguise his appearance in any way when he was out a couple days ago killing people. You're right. And honestly, like, I did Google, like, what they look like. And green is like, I uh, he's pretty distinctive. I feel he has very like, light skin. Yes, and he unfortunately, unfortunately, I'm sorry, he is kind of handsome. I'm sorry, but he's a shit person. He's a piece of shit. He's garbage. 
but he's like he does have some like you said he's very light skin he has you just like you would that face like you would you would remember it right and he's very like, young he's the youngest of the right, group remember like, mm-hmm. it, and that's the thing too about some of these some of these serial killers or these trash human beings is when they look attractive like and like him like he didn't try to disguise himself like you know if like your face is just gonna be in somebody's brain constantly so like that i I just don't i don't know where i'm going with this but yeah (laughs) he's like he's got a very recognizable face i agree i think he does and if you guys haven't already looked at the instagram those pictures are on there from the last episode so you can go ahead and take a look and now that you know a little bit more about these characters take a look again at you know who looks like what and it'll kind of make sense that you could see how a description of him could easily fit him so definitely because he definitely doesn't look like any of the other ones okay sorry correct no you're fine so the next morning which was christmas eve december 24th two women were on a walk with their dogs when they came across the bag that had washed ashore from where harris had dumped the body so in a hole in the bag they could visibly see flesh so they called the police when the body was brought to the morgue they unwrapped the bundle and they found that he was missing his head, his hands, and his feet. His intestines and his organs were protruding from cuts that went from one hip to the other. They completely mutilated him. And this is also why he remains a, uh, excuse me, a John Doe, not a Jane Doe, because his head wasn't there and his hands weren't there. There was nothing to get prints from. And this is also in the 70s. So it also would have taken a while for some of that technology to develop. But nothing was even there. So, and those have so, never been recovered. What the fuck? I know that was your next question. Yes. Like, what the fuck? I'm sorry. The 70s were such a fucking crazy time. It is. And, you know, it's crazy. This stuff is still so happening. But it's just crazy to think about that somebody, you know, knew somebody who went on a trip to california and never came back and they don't know why maybe he just went to california he just decided he was going to stay there maybe he had always kind of been a um a person who moves all over the place nomad (laughs) and yes (laughs) you know and um you know maybe they didn't think much of it but this guy somebody at some point in time wondered what happened to him and there was no way for them to ever know and that's what's crazy about it. There's no system for them to look at for this guy who has no head. Right. And, like, so, like, do you think, like, now with the way technology is, do you think, like, now that it, they could, like, test DNA and see, like, if they still, I feel like they have enough. Like, maybe this is a dumb question. Like, since they have the rest of his body, like, I feel like they have enough to, you know, try to do another DNA test on him and see if it might happen like might happen to match up with somebody so like, what is that the familial dna yeah so they, that's definitely an option if his body was not cremated you know there's everybody has a different oh. process for what they do with bodies that are unclaimed and with this being part of a crime scene they may have you know obviously he was murdered so this may have yeah. been somebody that they buried in a specific place and something like that i don't know that that's ever been a consideration for anybody but that's an excellent question i mean i've read something recently where they got um dna samples from somebody's like thigh flesh yeah i that's really interesting how they do that i feel like i've maybe not maybe it was like like the very last little bit they had like it was like years and like decades basically and there was a case where they were able to test like like the last little bit of dna that they had that they got from like a random like tissue that was left like a minuscule amount and they were able to match it with that what is it i think it's codis right yeah Mm mm-hmm yeah like that i think that's just so cool so i uh, yeah i think it's really cool too i don't know that there's any need to do that for this person not to say it that way i think every single person deserves to be identified and have a proper burial and a proper whatever but since nobody you know 
not to say that nobody was looking for him but to me there's not necessarily a need for this since they well i don't want to ruin the whole story okay yeah we'll talk about that later okay okay (laughs) so in january of 1974 simon went with another member and bought a new 32 caliber gun from michael armstrong it's the same model as the gun that harris had discarded which he stated at this time that he lost when people started asking about it, he's like oh yeah i lost it don't know what happened so january 28th of 1974 with more behind the wheel him simon and harris went for a drive after watching muhammad ali fight on tv the first person they came across was 32-year-old Tanya Smith, who was walking to the fabric shop. She, for a long time, struggled with her weight, but now that she was getting more comfortable, she was ready to make some new blouses. She was a really excellent seamstress. Tanya also loved the opera and had upcoming plans to visit her mother and stepfather in Florida. But the Death Angels would stand in the way of all that. Simon jumped out of the car and followed close behind her, And before she even noticed that he was there, he shot her twice in the back. When she fell to the ground, Simon took a moment to look at her. A car pulled around the corner, so he ran. The man in the car, David Bianveneste, got a good look at him, though. He went to Smith's aid and said that, you know, she was still alive when he reached her. So Bienveneste decided to run the two blocks to the hospital for help, not even thinking to take his car. When he got to the hospital, he yelled that a woman had been shot and needed help. The person at the admitting desk asked if she had insurance. Bitch, fuck you and your insurance. How about that? He didn't even know how to react. He was like, a woman literally just been shot in the street up the road. Who gives a shit? Like, come on. So the clerk. Right, that's like when like a pregnant lady is going into labor and like somebody at the reception desk is like, no, you got to fill out all these papers. This baby's coming now. I don't have time for this. Exactly. Exactly. Somebody's been shot. Can we talk about that later? So the clerk told right. him that they could only admit her if she had insurance, which is fucking bullshit. And instead called the city ambulance. That's the way that it had to work. So police arrived before the ambulance and a few witnesses were still at the scene. Moore stated that he was next back in the car. So when he saw Vincent Woolen strolling along the sidewalk, he decided that that was going to be his target. It was actually Vincent's 69th birthday. He was a retired Coast Guardsman and was like living a super solitary and happy life. He was just so happy you know, just living his everyday retirement dream that he had worked so hard for. So Moore approached him quickly and shot him from behind. Wollen turned to Moore and exclaimed, you shot me. And then he turned back around and Moore shot him again. At both scenes, police found 32 caliber shell casings and got witness descriptions of the perpetrators. Because again, they're not being very careful. This is in the daytime. So both victims were still alive when they arrived at the hospital, but neither of them survived. Still driving around, Simon began giving Harris shit for not having even tried to kill anybody yet. Enraged, Harris demanded the gun. When he spotted 84-year-old John Bambick, he told Moore to pull over. Bambick was digging in a dumpster. Harris approached him from behind and shot him twice in the back. Bambick turned around and grabbed Harris at the neck. Hearing the gunshot, Charles Archuleta looked out from his apartment window and saw the men. Richard Williams was walking up the road and also saw the men struggling. After a long minute, Bambic went limp and collapsed to the ground and Harris ran off. Bambic was dead. It freaked the hell out of Harris that he shot him twice and he didn't immediately die. And he had time to react like that. Can I just say that the two older gentlemen that we've just talked about are like some boss ass men. Like first guy was like, you just shot me. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Why would you do that? Like, that's right. so, 
what the fuck? And then this guy, he's like able to still try to like fight him in a in a sense. Right. Like the adrenaline is crazy and that shit would have scared the fuck out of me too. I but know. Obviously I would never be trying to kill anybody. Right, of still, course. But his dumbass deserves. Like I wish like the man could have taken the gun and shot him in his fucking face at this point. I know, seriously. I just couldn't even be- I mean, I can't imagine how that must have felt in that moment. And Harris already was having like, you know, this is the first person that he even attempted this with. Harris was so conflicted this entire time so far about whether or not he even wanted to do this and so for that to be his first experience he was really shook up so the men continued to drive Moore wanted to also kill a female victim that night as they passed a laundromat Moore spotted 45 year old jane holly holly grew up with 13 siblings as an adult had one child of her own who was a son who was in the army she was happily married the laundromat was filled with eight other people, all who were black. So he told Simon to stop driving. And Simon told him it was too risky. There were too many people in there, but more insisted. He said that the blacks wouldn't mind if he killed the white devil. So they went back. And more entered the laundromat with nine total people in there. And as Holly had gotten up to retrieve her clothes from the dryer, Moore walked up right behind her and shot her twice in the back. Holly staggered as Moore ran out of the building, and everybody in the laundromat was completely frozen in shock. One of the men ran up to Holly to help ease her to the ground as she started to fall, and an ambulance was called. Holly was still alive when they made it to the hospital, but she ended up bleeding to death. Holly's husband, a while later, walked up to the laundromat looking for Holly. He was like, where the hell is my wife? And he was greeted by a police officer. It was then that he found out what had happened. So Simon Moore and Harris kept driving. The men were excited and had high adrenaline. Simon said that he was next and he wanted a female victim. So Simon spotted 23-year-old Roxanne McMillan who was married and had a three-month-old son, Leon. She was moving boxes from her car into her new apartment. Simon jumped out and walked right up to her. He said hi. She looked at him, said hi, and continued to get the boxes out of her car. Simon shot her once in the back and once in the side. 16-year-old Carol Madison heard the shots and looked out her window to see Simon jumping into a black Cadillac and the car speeding off. McMillan's husband also heard the shots and came running out. They did not have a phone, so he ran to the neighbor's house, and nobody answered the door. He ran to the next neighbor. Nothing. A woman across the street saw him and shouted that she had already called the police. Can you imagine being in that situation and not being able to call the police? Not at all. Like, I would... I would feel even more helpless not being right. able to do that than I already felt. Like, it just, it's, like, so, like, I feel like we all have, like, this comfort knowing at any given time when you feel like you are in danger, you just have to grab your phone, grab whatever phone you can get, anything you can get, and dial three digits. The moment that that's taken away from you, that has to be the most terrifying thing. One of the most terrifying things ever, I think. Right. And even if you're not a person who, you know, would call the police to right. not be able to call anybody for help, to not be able to right. do anything to get help. So fortunately, that woman did call and he stayed by McMillan's side until the ambulance arrived. She was paralyzed from the waist down, but she survived her injuries. The men kept driving, and unsurprisingly to Simon and Moore, Harris did not want to kill another person, even though it was his turn. They kicked him out of the car. Back in the lab, Luxish analyzed the bullets from that night. Though it was the same caliber and the same model gun, he identified that the bullets came from a different gun. The newspapers had descriptions of the men from witnesses and asked for any tips to call. Most importantly, 
witnesses were able to get a look at the black Cadillac they were driving around in. So police began pulling over people in a car that matched the description for questioning and advised people to stay off the streets, especially at night and especially if they were alone. It's unclear who did the last attack that night, but I kind of have mixed feelings about it. Let me tell you about it first. So Thomas Bates was hitchhiking, and so the car slowed down, likely appearing to Bates as if they were going to give him a ride. Well, when the passenger window rolled down, Bates was shot three times in the hip, stomach, and arm. Now, I think it was Simon, and I say this for two reasons. The first is that every time that one of the men is out and shoots somebody, the other guy in the front jumps over to the driver's side. So every time that Simon, and Harris is in the back seat. So every time that Simon has killed somebody, more jumps to the driver's seat and vice versa. Well, Simon was the last person to attack somebody who was McMillan. And therefore, he should be the one in the passenger seat, logically. Additionally... Thomas Bates did not die. And that also makes me kind of think that it was Simon. Because at this point, it's pretty obvious that he's not a good shot. He has more attempted murders than murders to his name. Bates, assuming that it was him, would be the sixth person that Simon had shot and the fourth person that survived those shootings. So... The examiner put out a $5,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer or killers from that January night. Just for reference, that's equivalent to about $26,000 today. I also just want to mention that the police arrived at each scene within two minutes of a call being radioed to them to report to. They were so quick and the men were still able to elude them. It's another reason why I just think luck is completely on their side. So the Death Angels all had a meeting. Because cooks had been caught and because people were giving descriptions and looking for them, they decided they would take a 60-day cooling off period. And by then, hopefully police will have backed off a little bit. In the meantime, Detectives Corrieris and Fotinos were officially assigned to the entire Zebra case, whereas in the beginning they were only in charge of Aircat's murder. So at this point, they were seriously considering the possibility of the crimes because of the randomness and racial aspect being a part of the Black Muslims as an initiation for a sect. They wanted to set up surveillance, but it's against the Constitution to put surveillance in a place of worship. And they figured if they're going to be talking about it somewhere, it's going to be at their mosque. And that's where they would be able to get images of everybody coming in and out. So that being said, on February 17th of 1974, California Department of Justice set up surveillance footage on the apartment complex across the street from the mosque, which was legal. This allowed them to take photos of each and every person entering and exiting the mosque. Harris was overly anxious about everything with the Death Angels and decided to move with his girlfriend Debbie and their son, Anthony Jr., to Oakland, which is just across the bay from San Francisco. And he did not tell anybody where they were going, which is very bad for this kind of a group. You can't just disappear and not tell anybody where you're going. I also feel like if you have a family, just in general... As a human being, you shouldn't be doing this. But even more so, if you have a, a family. Oh, yeah. I, I don't understand. Is this really, like, truly, like, especially, like, Harris? Because, you know, all the shit they were giving him, you know, he, he seems like he didn't really want to do it in a way. But he did it. He did it nonetheless. Like, I feel like him having his own son should have been motivation enough not to go, not to want to do this. I agree, but a lot of these people have kids or had, you know, a wife or whatever right. before all of this. And it's crazy how this is just what they are getting involved in. This is to them what politically made sense to them at the time. So, on April 1st of 1974, Green was sick of waiting to be told that it was time to kill again. 
He told Simon and Moore that the god Allah had spoken to him and his time was now. Borrowing Simon's gun, the 32 that had been used in the victims in January, Green went out. Green walked to the Salvation Army Officer Training School, a place that he had previously watched young cadets excuse me, go earlier that day. 21-year-old Linda Story and 19-year-old Thomas Rainwater were two first-year cadets who had just attended a night study session from 7 till 9. Rainwater wanted to do orphanage work when he was done with school, and Story was telling him how respectable that was and how nice it is that he knows what he wants to do with his life. The two were walking away from the school after signing out that they were going to the market and knew that they had until 10.30 curfew to return back. Green was popped up against a car fender behind a tree that was obscuring him from Story and Rainwater's vision. When they passed him, he followed in line behind them on the sidewalk. He lifted up the gun to shoot them, but then he decided that wasn't good enough. He wanted to look them in the eye. So he rushed to be in front of them, and when he was several feet ahead, he turned around and pointed the gun at them. After a moment of shock, they both turned to run away. Green shot Rainwater first, two times in the back. Then he shot Story twice in her back. Story fell immediately and began screaming. Rainwater staggered for several feet until he fell to the ground also. Story continued to scream. So Green fired another shot at her, but he missed. Green's gun jammed, but he actually didn't know hit. Behind him, he heard footsteps running, and it was actually two detectives. They were unrelated to the zebra case, but they were doing a sting operation at a hotel on that road, and they heard the gunshots, so they came running. Frank Richardson, who lived on that street, looked out his window when he heard the gunshots. He saw Green running through the parking lot where he had previously been leaning on a car to escape. He noted that Green stumbled, and when he did, he placed his hand on a vehicle. Elizabeth Lee, who lived a little further down the street, also heard the gunshots. She opened her window and shouted out to Green when he was still standing there, What happened? And she locked eyes with him before he ran off. Story survived the shooting. Rainwater did not, and once again, the ballistic tests showed that the bullets were fired from the same gun as the last two times. Investigators searched for prints on the vehicle that Green had touched, but nothing usable was there. When he touched the car, he must have kept moving, and it smudged his handprint, not making it a perfect handprint for them to actually gather. Again, luck. Definitely, definitely luck for sure. Because what the fuck? <laughs> Such a good opportunity and nothing. So April 14th of 1974 was Easter Sunday. Bernice White and her five children were having a picnic in the afternoon at a park near the Golden Gate Bridge. They played games and enjoyed the good weather. Around 5 p.m., the two boys, Terry White, who was 15, and Tim Timothy White, who was 14, separated from the rest of the family to go have dinner with a friend in a different part of town. Mrs. White told her boys not to stay out too late, and they agreed, and they hopped on a bus. Well, at 8.30, Terry decided to head home. Timothy told him to let their mom know he would be home in a little bit, but he was going to stay just a little while longer. Terry boarded the bus and got up at Hay Street to transfer to his next stop. Ward Anderson, who was 18, was a merchant seaman. He had boarded the bus to visit a friend for a few hours in the marina district. He was coming from a different direction heading home, but also got off at Hay Street to transfer, arriving just minutes before Terry. He had smoked his last cigarette, but was craving one. Because it was Easter Sunday, none of the corner shops were open. When Terry arrived at Hay Street stop, Anderson asked him if he had any. He didn't. Two black women joined them at the bus stop. Moore was walking to the bus stop also with Simon's 32 pistol in his pocket. As he was walking there, an unmarked car patrolling the area for Zebra passed by. They saw nothing suspicious as they passed and they did not stop. When Moore approached the bus station, 
Anderson asked him if he had a cigarette. Moore passed him, not saying anything, then stopped at the corner of the road. He pulled the gun out and turned around, shooting Anderson twice in his lower back. He fell immediately. Terry winced at the sound. When he went to look, Moore shot him in the ribs. As he started to fall, the second shot hit him in his arm, and he fell immediately. Moore took off running. Within 90 seconds, police were blocking the area. The zebra unit car that passed was one of many in the area, but they were still too late, and Moore escaped without running into any of the policemen. Both Anderson and Terry did survive. As we already know, ballistic tests confirmed that the same gun was used for these two attempted murders. Harris called Green to talk to him, telling him that they were in Texas. Green warned him that people were mad that he ran off without saying anything, and said it the whole, if you're not with us, you're against us. Harris at this point was having nightmares and an immensely guilty conscience, but that didn't matter to the Death Angels. On April 16th of 1974, 23-year-old Nelson Shields IV and Jonathan May just finished a lacrosse game. The two were in Shields' station wagon after the game, headed to pick up a rug for May. May thanked Shields for being willing to help him, since it would fit in his car and save him the trip. Shields was born in Delaware, but had lived in separate places and only recently moved to San Francisco. He had a dog named Lady, who he rescued after she was picked up by animal control and brought to the pound because he was afraid they were going to put her to sleep. When they got to the house to pick up the rug, May went inside as Shields straightened out the trunk. Between the lacrosse gear and his personal stuff, he knew it was going to take a minute to do that. Simon was walking up the road when he noticed Shields leaning in the back of the station wagon. When he got close, Simon shot three bullets at Shields. He fell to the ground and died instantly. As soon as he shot the third bullet, Simon took off running. By the time May and the other person in the home reacted and came outside, he was already long gone. As he was running, Simon, sirens boomed in the area, so Simon started to panic a little bit. He didn't stop running until he heard a door slam, and up the road, a man stood on his porch with a gun. He decided he needed to go a different route, so he began hopping fences, hoping nobody would be in their backyard. More sirens were sounding, and Simon's remember cooks, who got caught with the gun and got arrested. So Simon saw between yards some tall grass and pine needles that look untouched and tossed the gun there. That way, if he got stopped, he didn't have the gun on him. But he didn't get stopped, and nobody saw him. So Harris saw in the newspaper the next day two composite sketches for the first time, and one of the sketches was him. The other was green. There was also a $30,000 reward listed for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the murderers in question. Debbie also saw the sketches. Up until this point in time, Harris had never spoken to her about any involvement that he had with the Death Angels. In fact, Debbie didn't even know about the Death Angels. She merely thought he was a black Muslim and that Simon and Green and Cooks and more were just bad influences. She heard rumors in the church from time to time, but that's all they were to her, just rumors. Harris didn't talk to Debbie for three days after the sketches, confirming to her that it was true and that was him. He would sit across from her at dinner and just not speak. It wasn't until the third day, when she was looking at the photos in the paper, that Harris finally said, $30,000 is a lot of money. How long do you think you and Anthony Jr. could live off of that? Police announced that they were going to be stopping anybody who matched the composite sketches for questioning. Many people and many public officials pushed back against this. They said it was against their constitutional rights and that was incredibly problematic and racially motivated. The police defended that they did the same thing years prior looking for a white male rapist that it was best for security of everybody in the city. People who were interviewed would be given a card that they could show if they got stopped again that would have their name on it and be signed off on by an officer so that they could carry on. They did it for a few days with no luck, and people were pissed. 
U.S. District Court Judge Alfonso J. Zerpoli put a stop to it very quickly, saying, in fact, it was unconstitutional, and in order for a police officer to stop somebody, they had to have reasonable suspicion that they had or currently were involved in a crime. Businesses in San Francisco were all struggling at this time, and people were canceling vacations left and right, and many people refrained from going out after dark. That night, a man called the police department asking to meet for information about the zebra killings. Officers Broch and Klotz, who were also working on Operation Zebra, headed to Oakland to meet the man. They met in a bank parking lot, and when they got there, Anthony Harris was waiting for them. They patted him down for weapons, and the three of them got into the unmarked car and drove around to talk. Harris's conditions before speaking to them were really simple. His name couldn't be used in any papers, and the reward money would go to his girlfriend and his child. They agreed that if his information was good enough for the condition of the reward, that would be fine. Harris told them that he had been a part of the Death Angels, but couldn't get down with killing women and children like all the men wanted them to. The officers asked him blankly what children he was talking about. As far as the public knew, no children were involved yet in any of the murders or attempted murders. But when Harris told them about the three kids the day of the Hague attack, the officers knew. Harris was the real deal, and he was really there. Because those three kids, if you remember from part one, the very first three kids that they tried to kidnap off the sidewalk was never put in the news on purpose. So Harris agreed to go to the police station for interrogation by Corrieris and Potinos. They asked him first why he was coming forward. Harris stated that he wanted the reward and safety for his partner and child. He said he always wanted the killings to stop. Corrieris and Potinos agreed that they could ensure both of the things if he had the information to lead to the arrest and conviction of the men involved. Harris first implicated J.C. Simon and Larry Green. One of the officers ran their information, but both came up with clean records. They got their ID pictures to confirm with Harris. They asked him to be specific about the men's involvement. Harris told them about Simon doing a sting at the grocery store, and that Green was the one who killed the woman at the railroad tracks. They took out a picture of Haig from the crime scene and showed Harris. Now, I want you to keep in mind that during that attack on the Hags, Harris was at the van. He didn't actually see the end result of the attack. He only knew and saw her in the distance on the railroad track. And he couldn't believe his eyes. So the investigators asked Harris who else he knew to be involved. And he said Manuel Moore. They ran his name and were able to pull up an extensive criminal record for him. Harris positively ID'd him from the photo they provided. They asked him which crimes he knew Moore was responsible for. And he told them about the woman at the laundromat. He continued to talk to them about the series of murders and of Jesse Lee Cook's and of other members of the Death Angels also. He told the investigators about the John Doe that had been hacked to death that he personally threw over the bridge into the bay. Harris told him about earning Death Angel wings and how the pictures of the men with their wings were always displayed at meetings that happened in the loft above the moving and storage building. At this point, he had not implicated himself in any murder. As the night got late, Police went with him to pick up Debbie and Anthony Jr. and put them all in a nearby hotel to keep them in protective custody as Harris was worried about their safety. The next day when the interrogation continued, Harris implicated the specific men to all the murders they were involved in. The officers asked Harris about his specific involvement. They told him that they would offer him immunity and he would not be tried for his involvement. The officers also told Harris that he would need an attorney so that they could work with an immunity deal and someone would be at his defense. Harris literally picked a completely random person out of the phone book and he chose Lawrence Kaufman. When Kaufman, Corrieris, and Fotinos arrived the next morning, a black gentleman was waiting in the lobby. Corrieris, and this is at the hotel that they were staying at where Harris and Debbie and Anthony Jr. were staying. Corrieris confronted him and he merely said he was meeting a friend. This man had, in fact, called Harris and told him he had a message for him from the mosque. 
Botinas and Kaufman headed up to Harris's room as they interacted. It was then that Harris told Fotinos that the man was there for him. Debbie had actually called a friend from the mosque to talk, who was one of the wives of a minister, and told her where they were staying. Corrieris called up to Harris's room, and Fotinos told him this. As this was happening, four additional black Muslims entered the hotel. So Corrieris left the building and jumped into his car, and began driving the parking deck to the top as the others worked their way up the stairs to the top, as Fotinos had arranged with him over the phone. The black Muslims, unsure of what room Harris was staying in, because remember, he's supposed to be there com- you know, confidentially, for lack of a better word, they were able to get a hold of him on the phone. Yes. They would not tell him what room they were in. So they started going from floor to floor searching for him. Corrieris met the group at the top, and after everybody was in the car, began driving back down and headed off to the Hall of Justice. As the car was leaving, the black Muslims made it to the rooftop. The officers put Harris into a new hotel with guards this time. But the black Muslims weren't stupid. A group of four well-dressed men went from hotel to hotel in the area. One would go inside and say, quote, Excuse me, I'm sorry to trouble you, but I'm trying to locate a cousin of mine who's staying with his family in one of the downtown motels. I'm a little embarrassed because I can't remember his last name. He's a distant cousin. But I was wondering if you had a black man about 30 registered with his wife and one infant. And as he was doing that, the remaining three men would circle the premises to look for police or guards to indicate whether or not he was there. That's terrifying. So the officers were getting anxious about keeping the Harrises in town. Though they had successful information for their interrogations, they needed an outward statement that fully and undoubtedly implicated the men for the murders. They told this to Kaufman, who explained that Harris wanted to, but he wanted to speak with Mayor Alioto to ensure his immunity before doing so. So the officers arranged it. Alioto stated he could not guarantee it, but that every single one of them would be willing to fight for his immunity to put a stop to this. So Corrieris, Fotinos, Kaufman, Alioto, and the Harrises met and made an agreement. And Harris gave his formal confession. On May 1st of 1974, at 4 a.m., a group of over 100 officers gathered to finalize their plan to apprehend six men. Simon, Green, Moore, and three other members that Harris had implicated. Cooks was already incarcerated, as we know. Both Simon and Green lived in an apartment complex on Grove Street, in separate apartments, but the same building. Forty-some-odd officers were assigned to this specific mission. Between seven and ten men were going to enter each separate apartment. The building was surrounded by ten men, and the streets surrounding the block were guarded by 20 other officers. Two members were known to be sleeping at the storage and moving company, where an additional 20 officers were. Six officers were set to apprehend Moore, who was only four blocks from Simon and Green's apartment complex on Grove Street, and therefore also had officers cordoning off part of his street. The last member had an unspecified number of officers there to apprehend him. The officers were all coordinated so that at an exact moment, they would ambush. At 5 a.m. on the dot, a specified officer at each place flashed a lantern, signaling everyone in their spot ready that it was go time. So one officer used a crowbar to yank the lock off of the door as a second officer kicked in the door and stepped inside first, gun ahead of their body. All of the officers stormed into the apartment, lanterns lit. When officers rushed Simon, he sat up in his bed frozen. He said, I give up, don't shoot. They told him he's under arrest for suspicion of conspiracy to commit murder. And Simon said, I didn't commit no murder, this is a frame up. The officer read him his rights and showed him a search warrant as the other officers began searching his apartment. In his apartment, 
Green was also being read his rights. He protested telling the officers that they got the wrong person and that he didn't do anything. Once all six men were arrested and their houses were searched, they realized they did not find the gun. Fortunately, that wouldn't be true for very long. Two boys were playing baseball in the backyard when one of the boys hit a ball over the fence into the neighbor's yard. The one kid gave him a boost to go look for it. He stumbled through some tall grass and pine straw and he kicked something heavy, which he thought was their baseball. But it was actually the gun that Simon had discarded a block away from where he had killed Shields. So the boy's dad called the police and they took possession of the gun. But it wasn't as simple as having a weapon in their possession, because police now had to be able to link the gun to one of the zebra killers, because it wasn't found in their possession. So they started tracing it. And it was a hot mess. It got traded between so many hands that it's near impossible to link to the next person. After making its way through several people, police ended on Mumu, a Samoan man who claimed that they threw it out. And nothing could, they couldn't get anything else out of Mumu. And after a few months, he actually passed away. So police no longer could trace the gun by speaking with people and understanding the change of hands. After a very careful analysis of Harris's confession and witness statements and identification, police ended up letting the three men go that I left unnamed. There was simply not enough evidence to indict them. That left Cooks, Simon, Moore, and Green, who were indicted by the grand jury for, quote, one count of conspiracy to commit murder, three counts of murder, two counts of kidnapping, two counts of robbery, and four counts of assault with a deadly weapon. In prison, they were each kept secluded from each other and from other prisoners. They were not allowed to pass any kind of note or have any kind of communication with one another, and they were on constant surveillance and were considered incredibly dangerous. And then, six weeks before the trial, on January 5th, 1975, Corey got a phone call from Michael Armstrong. If I know there's been so many names <laughs> going on in this story, but if anybody remembers, Armstrong is the man who sold Simon the gun that the police currently had in their possession. Well, Armstrong was in prison for burglary. Corriers paid him a visit, and Armstrong told him their missing link. He had sold a 32 to Tom Manny, which is one of the men originally arrested, but who was not indicted for the murders. Corriers wasn't stupid, though, and he knew that everyone had access to information about the type of gun used in the crimes. And he thought, you know, maybe Armstrong's just trying to get a lower sentence for this information. So he asked Armstrong where he got the guns from. And so Armstrong told him a few places that he had gotten them. And one of them was a purchase that he made from a Samoan man named Mumu. Now, if you remember, Simon was the one with the gun and using the gun. But he was with another person when he bought it. Well, that person was Manny, the manager at the storage and moving company. The trial went from March 3rd, 1975 to March 9th, 1976, over a year. At the time, it was the longest trial in the state's history. The trial's transcript had over 14,000 pages and were separated by volume. Over a hundred, I know, over 180 witnesses took the stand. Harris testified for 12 days and was formally given immunity for his testimony. Luxish, who had done all of the ballistic testing, testified on several days also. Even Harris's ex-wife, Carolyn Patton, testified because she had the ring, if you remember, that had been on Keita Haig's finger prior to her murder. And of course, Armstrong testified about selling the gun to the men. The defense team attacked Harris, saying he was mentally ill, and they also stated that he wanted revenge because Simon had killed his brother, who was a Muslim in California, which I have no further information on. I went through, just so you know, in addition to the book that I had mentioned, I also went through the entire case law of this, which is very long. Um, and there's no mention 
of a brother or anything like this other than this alleged claim. So it wasn't proven to be true or untrue in court. And lastly, that Harris was the sole zebra killer. Each defendant pleaded not guilty, except, of course, Cooks, who had already previously pleaded guilty for his crimes. But, of course, Cooks couldn't testify against the other men. He was not there during the other men's involvement. So, Harris never admitted to the sole murder that he committed. I also want to mention that once Cooks was arrested and pleaded guilty, the Death Angels and Black Muslims essentially disowned him. Because if you're caught, you basically don't matter anymore. So Manny, of course, testified that he never bought the gun and nobody at the company had. And he wasn't actually indicted, remember, but he was called to testify for the defense. Now, when it was time for the jury to do the jury thing <laughs> um, and come up with a verdict, everyone was expecting an incredibly long time. This trial was over a year. But... It actually only took them 18 hours to come up with their verdict. And all four men were found guilty on all charges against them. And they were all given life sentences. Yes, we'd love to see justice. Yes. In total, the zebra killers were active for 179 days. And their victims include 15 who were deceased and 10 additional who were injured. And this does not in any way, include any other murders potentially linked to the Death Angels. If you remember, I stated that there were several members who already had their wings. We do not know that information. What we do know is that during this 179-day period, there were 25 attempted murders, 15 of which were successful. In 2015, Simon died in his cell in prison for an unknown cause. He was 69 years old. He maintained his innocence the entire time. In 2017, Moore died in prison at age 75, and he also maintained his innocence. To this day, Green maintains his innocence. He is now 68 years old, and he was denied parole in 2020. He will get another shot at parole in 2025. Cooks, who again is the only one to admit their guilt denied going to his parole hearing and said that he would wait until 2025 when he is 80 years old and then he'll consider even going. I literally cannot find out if Anthony Harris is even alive. I'm guessing that he probably uses a different name now for protection, but I do wonder. And I wonder how long these murders would have gone on if he hadn't confessed. Exactly. Um, I think, I don't know. I think he's out there somewhere. I don't think he's, like, passed or anything. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know either, don't know. but there's no information on him. So I definitely think that he probably changed his name, which would make sense. And, yeah. you know, I just, I wonder. But I was going to say, that it feels like they're doing a, a good job at hiding him if that's what they're doing. Exactly. So... <laughs> You know, um, obviously he was involved. You know, we can't call him a saint, but thankfully he was involved because he was the one who put an end to it at the same time. Yeah. I believe that the police would have eventually caught them. I just don't know how many victims would have been between them catching them. Yeah, no, definitely. So that was the our last cult of this season, the Death Angels. Woo! That was a doozy. Oh, that was rough. I probably spent an entire day of my life going through research for this, so I hope that you guys enjoyed that story. I know that it was very, um, very painful to listen to. It was very rough. It's only going to continue on that way. It's not getting any better. But yeah, you can you did a great job. Thank you, thank you. You can find pictures from these last two episodes at our Instagram at. Uh, Crafts, Drafts, and Crime. You can follow us on Facebook at Crafts, Drafts, and Crime. You can follow us on Twitter at Crafts and Crime. You can subscribe to our Patreon at Crafts, Drafts, and Crime. 
and you can send us a story or literally anything you want in our email at craftsdraftsandcrime at gmail.com. And if you listen on Apple, please rate and review us. And please keep listening and tell your friends. And we will keep showing up every week and doing it. Yep, yep. That's the plan. (laughs) Thank you guys for listening. Until next time. Bye. Bye.